as I read the ending of Romans chapter 3. You may remember four weeks ago uh, we looked at verse 28 and then uh, we've taken a brief break from Romans, uh, but now returning to conclude what Paul says there. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. And hear the word of God. Where then, or where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through, the, through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, how thankful we are for the teaching of Paul in the book of Romans. We praise you that through this book you are still speaking to your church today and we only ask that through the preaching you might bring that speech more clearly home to the hearts and the lives of the hearers here today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you remember, uh, verses 21 through 26, uh, Paul, in those verses, Paul is summarizing the gospel of justification, the, the righteousness of God apart from the law which is being revealed which is found in the person of Jesus Christ, his righteousness revealed uh, on the cross, where God set him forth as a propitiation to be received by faith. It, it is one of, uh, it, really it's impossible even to summarize here, I think it was three sermons, but it's one of the greatest summary statements of the gospel in the whole of scripture. And uh, that's not just me saying that when I was reading sermons and commentaries on, on that passage. That was con- consistently the emphasis of those who I was reading. And the question uh, which some of them ask and which I'm now asking is, why not simply leave things there? He stated it succinctly and triumphantly in many ways. Why does he go on in verses 27 through 31 before he moves on to another subject in chapter 4? Why does he bring in an almost anticlimactic fashion Uh, Matters of secondary importance, which admittedly everything he says here is a matter of secondary importance. And the answer which I would give here, even though it is admittedly anticlimactic, is that uh, Paul realized, as we need to realize, that the gospel needs to be worked out. You can't just state the gospel and triumph and glory in the gospel and then just leave it there. Paul was a preacher, you remember. Uh, and he didn't want to leave his hearers in suspense, even though that might have had greater, uh, greater rhetorical flourish. Uh, his, his interest was in establishing and edifying these Christians. And so he wanted to take the gospel that he preached and then to work it out. And really, that's what he's doing all the way throughout. Another way to, uh, throughout the book of Romans, another way to put this is that we as Christians need to be sure not only that we believe the one and only gospel, and that we are adhering to that one and only gospel, but we also, on the level of uh, secondary importance, we need to be sure that our lives are in line with the gospel, and even our beliefs. We need to be sure in the level of our living and in our thinking and in our beliefs that we have really, in fact, understood the gospel. And very often it is the case that we discover in the realm of secondary application 
that our view of things really were not as sound as we thought they were. And so what we have here in these verses are three implications of the gospel. The gospel of justification by faith only. And the first of these is stated in verse 27 that boasting is excluded. You see, that's not the gospel. That is an implication of the gospel. And it becomes an indication as to whether we have understood the gospel. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Boasting is excluded. That is uh, the primary assertion here of this verse and the first implication. Having just stated the gospel of justification by faith alone in verses 21 through 26, he immediately asks this question. Where is boasting then? That is, where, if this teaching be true, is there any room for boasting? Is there any room left for boasting in man confronted with this teaching about salvation? Indeed, the question, where is boasting then, has a way of focusing the very issue he was contending for in the prior verses, justification by faith alone. You think of the Jew, for instance, who had so much to boast about, his nationality, his birth, his, his inheritance of the law. Paul even uses that language, I believe, in chapter 3. They boasted in their inheritance as Jews. But Paul, if you think of it, on the other hand, who was uh, a Jew who became a Christian, become to, or came to boast in something else entirely. When he introduces the gospel in chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of it. Which is as though to say, I am proud of it. I'm boasting in the gospel. And the whole of Romans is seen as his boast in the gospel, but not in himself. The question which naturally arises at this point is this. What does he mean by boasting? It is clear if you read Paul and if you get to know Paul in the New Testament that boasting was one of his favorite words or one of his favorite concepts. Another word that you might find in the King James, for instance, is glorying. And I once had someone ask me, what does glorying mean? Well, it means boasting. But then what does boasting mean? Well, it's clear uh, looking at Paul again that this was what we might call a besetting sin of Paul's. Not only something that he was given to in his pre-Christian state, and he even catalogs the things in which he boasted in Philippians chapter 3, but it would even seem from his account of the thorn which God placed in his flesh that he was still given to it as a Christian and as an apostle so that God had to humble him and teach him uh, the adequacy and the sufficiency of his grace. Boasting is, I'll define it now, the self-congratulatory posture that one finds so often in the Pharisees, boasting in self. I'm a self-made man, not just in business, but in religion. As I stand before God, I will stand on my own merits proudly. Thank you very much. That's what boasting means. The kind of self-assured posture that is common even today. You don't just find it in the Gospels. This is a universal tendency uh, among humanity and uh, it is something, as I said, even Christians have to contend against in their flesh once they are converted. The gospel as it is preached to man is an offense to this tendency. The effect of preaching the gospel is that it humbles man. It humbles him to the core. It says everything that you've boasted, and if you think of what Paul says in Philippians 3, is absolute rubbish. It is worthless. It is refuse. It belongs in the dumpster. That's what the preaching of the gospel does. You're not ashamed of the gospel, but you listen to it, you begin to become ashamed of yourself. 
And the man who refuses to be ashamed of himself is the man who hates the gospel. He's the man who feels he has no need of the gospel. And he always rejects the preaching of the gospel. Because the gospel robs him of the thing he's most proud of. And that is himself and his own works. And so this question again, where is boasting then? In response to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, it becomes a kind of test as to whether we are clear about the gospel that Paul has been preaching. Have you understood the teaching? Chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. More importantly and more pointedly, have you accepted it yourself as your own life and your own salvation? And as the thing which determines your standing before a holy and a righteous God. Well, very simply, here is the test. It is a test which you have to apply not only to your life, but your own heart and your own posture before God. Are you still boasting? Are you still boasting in yourself? Are you still congratulating yourself before God like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18? To put it another way, are you proud of anything in the presence of God? But the righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. Paul goes on to tell us on what grounds boasting is excluded. He says it is, it is excluded by what law? We could, we could variously translate law as grounds or principle. By what grounds or what principle? Of works? No. But by the law or the grounds or the principle of faith. Not on a law of works, but on a law of faith. That is, again, the law of faith is a way of summarizing what he's just been expounding in verses 21 through 26. This glorious summary of the gospel. He is setting forth the law, the principle of faith. A man is justified not by works, but by faith. That's what he says in the next verse, isn't it? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It is the law which determines a man's status before God. Is he just or is he unjust? And the fundamental assertion of Paul has been up to this point that none is righteous and that none can be justified by the law. That being so, the only way of justification is by faith in Jesus Christ as God set him forth as a propitiation on the cross. And so it is the law of faith That excludes boasting in self because it places salvation and looks for righteousness outside of self. And in that very act of believing and relying on another, boasting is excluded. That's the law of faith. And this becomes clear when one considers what it is about the law of faith and the law of works specifically that is being contrasted. The law of works is the law or the principle of human endeavor and human achievement. It places man's confidence in what he either has done or can do or will do. Or even what he is. And it seeks favor and justification from God solely on the basis of all of that. What he is and what he does. His own obedience to the law. Now included in that system, the law of works, admittedly. There is room for boasting. And people who live like this are boasting all the time. And if a man could really, we'll see this in chapter 4, if a man could really keep the law, well then he might have something to boast about before God. But, the problem is, 
Under that law, nobody wins. Everybody fails. And so man has no room to boast, not even from the standpoint of the law of works. But this is especially ruled out when you come into the other side of things. The the other system is presented in the gospel, that is the law of faith. Which again, by its very nature, looks not to human achievement, but it looks outside of itself. And it relies on something or someone else. That's what faith is. In any realm, that's what faith is. I am placing my trust in something other than myself. And so this helps to define more precisely the role of faith uh, seen as a law, but also as the instrument of our justification. The role of faith. Faith is seen here not as something that man does. It is not a work, but rather as the instrument by which man relies solely on God for his righteousness. That is man's righteousness. How am I to attain a righteousness before God that he will satisfy and that he will justify? The answer is by faith in another. That is the specific quality of faith, John Murray says, that distinguishes it from works. Namely, that it relies and rests and receives on another. Now, that language of relying, resting and receiving is precisely the language you will find in the confessional statement, the Westminster Confession statement on saving faith. What does faith do? It receives, it rests, it relies on Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. It is not relying or resting in self, but it is relying and resting and receiving from Jesus Christ. Or as Jonathan Edwards says, we just read this in the men's study, and I thought this is a very helpful description of faith. He says, uh, he's describing faith as trust, which is another way of putting the word reliance that I've been using. He says the very idea of our trusting another is resting or living in acquiescence of mind and heart in the full persuasion of his sufficiency and faithfulness so as to be ready fully to venture on him in all our actions. It ventures all upon the one in whom it trusts. That's what faith is. We venture all upon Jesus Christ. We venture our souls. We venture our lives. That's faith. That is the law of faith. Again, it looks outside of itself for that which it seeks, namely a righteousness that would satisfy God, and it finds it in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, it becomes the instrument of justification. But let us look at now the second implication or principle which we find in verse 29 and verse 30. He says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Again, what Paul is doing is he's taking the gospel and he's reasoning it out. He's saying, here's the effect or the implications of the gospel. And as we all operate in the realm of the implication, we are able to determine by induction whether, in fact, we have accepted and received the gospel. Look at your life. Then you'll be able to see what you really believe. And so he is judging, if you will, whether we really have grasped the gospel By whether we are living in the way it ought to lead to. Whether we have realized, as he says, is the second principle or implication that distinctions are abolished. 
Boasting is excluded. Also, distinctions are abolished. That is the effect of the gospel. Do you remember what happened to Peter? He had this glorious experience where he came to see that the gospel is for the Gentiles too. And this is a wonderful transition in the book of Acts. At first they were preaching the Jews only, but then it began to extend in the whole world. And Peter was very eager to share this with others, not just with the Gentiles, but even with the Jews. Do you realize what God is doing? Do you realize what the gospel is leading to? But do you also remember that Peter himself became ashamed of this very teaching when certain men of the Judaizers came in and they began to break fellowship with the Gentiles? Do you realize what Peter was doing there? If you, if you actually understand what Paul is contending for in Galatians, he's saying, Peter, by implication, you just denied the gospel. In the realm of your practice, you've denied your belief. And again, that's where we are operating right now. Now, thank God, in the midst of that rebuke, Peter repented and he, well, I think we could say was straightened out. That's an example of what we're talking about here. How our beliefs get muddled in our practice. Paul would have us do better than Peter. He would have us to be straightened out from the outset. The trouble is that we're all sinners. And that uh, as we see in the New Testament, this is a particular point that needs to be hammered again and again and again. Paul reminds us theologically, the teaching of the Bible very simply about God is that he is one. That's, the, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the famous Shema. The Lord our God is one. And if you read the Old Testament, that is uh, the triumphant assertion of the Jews again and again. And it is because of this, the fact that God is one. He's particularly speaking to the Jews here. That there is not one way of the salvation for the Gentiles and another for the Jews. Or a special kind of treatment for the Jews, but then nothing but wrath and hostility for the Gentiles. The argument here is, as has been the argument throughout Romans, that all mankind is under the same position, or in the same position, under God. Because of the universality of sin, all men alike are condemned and liable to judgment. And that is not, he has already told us in, in, in chapter 2, a peculiarly, peculiarly Gentile problem. It is a human one. It is what we all share in common as a result of sin in our relation to Adam as his children. This is how man stands in relation to a holy God. God, again, does not deal with one man one way and then another man in another way. Because that would be, again, notice his close theological reasoning. That would mean that God really isn't one, but that he is actually inconsistent. It would be to deny his essential unity of being and purpose. That God is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And if God is one and holy and just, then his ways must be the same for all. His response to sin, for instance, is the same for all. Which is one that we've already seen. It is not just the universality of sin, but the universality of condemnation. But the same as Paul is saying here can be said with respect to salvation. The universality with respect to the offer of the gospel. That all men alike, because God is one, might be saved in exactly the same way. Now Paul has been saying this all along as well. 
It's the power of God to salvation. Verse 17 of chapter 1. For the Jew first, but also the Gentile. Don't think that he's excluded. It's the same power on display for all men alike. If only they would exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Another way that we could put this in response to one of the modern errors, which is actually the opposite of this, but it's the same fallacy. This is one of the most common refrains. I've heard it all of my life. And that is that there are many paths which, which lead to God. Or perhaps the saying that the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians all worship the same God. So what's the difference? That is actually to take this teaching which Paul is saying God is one and it is utterly to distort it. Because God, Paul is saying if God is one, then there's only one way to the Father, which is through the Son. That is to utterly distort the, the teaching to say because God is one, all paths, all three of these and many others lead all to the same place. It's also the fallacy, let me be a little bit controversial here, it's the fallacy of the so-called Judeo-Christian idea. Sometimes I hear Christians saying that today in America, that we're Jude, the Judeo-Christian principle. There is no such principle that a Christian could subscribe to. To become a Christian is to reject Judaism. The only way to the Father is through the Son. The Jews do not worship the same God. They've rejected God in the flesh who came before them. We do not, let me say again, worship the same God. The one God has offered one way of salvation to all men, and that is through reconciling them to himself through his Son. And if he were to deal with all men in many ways, the question is, can he really be one? The answer is he cannot. And so the effect of this in the realm of our own living is, uh, that is to say, on the level of implication, is that distinctions are abolished. Another way to put this is that our ecclesiology is formed by our soteriology. Our ecclesiology is formed by our soteriology. Now that's just a fancy way of saying that our view of the church is informed by our view of the gospel. And you can tell a lot what a man believes about the gospel by looking at his practice in the church. Certainly, that, that phrase I just said, ecclesiology is formed by soteriology, was the basis of the prior sermon, where Christ says, I will build my church, not seeing that as a separate work, but by seeing that as an extension of the same work. First, he lays down his life for the sheep, and then he gathers them, and he's still doing that. He's still building his church. And gathering those elect whom he has redeemed upon the cross. All of that together is seen as his great work of salvation. The formation and the building of the church. And if you think about the way the gospel informs the church. Seeing both as the same work. Seeing both as Christ's work. We have to realize that in saving sinners which also means in gathering sinners, that Christ is not interested in the old distinctions. In fact, we know that he came to abolish them. The most prominent in the days of the early church was the Jew and the Gentile, but there were others as well. The question is, if Jesus, in his work of saving sinners, came to abolish these things, do you think they have any relevance in the church today? Do you think it interests me, for instance, as a Christian and as a pastor in the least, what color a man happens to be? Or do you understand that the only thing that matters with respect to his salvation and thus his standing and place in the church is whether he believes and accepts and receives this gospel? 
Whether he joins me in believing it and can say together with me, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for I know it is the power of God to save the Jew first and also the Greek, even me and even you. And if he can say that, then it doesn't matter what else is true of him. He is my brother in Christ. That's, you see, on the realm or on the level of implication that Paul is arguing here. You you understand a man's belief in the gospel by his belief and practice in the church. Look to his practice and you'll see what he really believes. Who does he consider his brother? And then you'll know his view of salvation. Never mind if this man... This fellow Christian is a Jew or a Greek or a white man or a black man or a woman or a child or old or young. The thing I want to know is this, to use the language of verse 27, what is he boasting in? And what does he think of this gospel? Has he accepted it? Has he made his full life to depend upon it so that he ventures all upon Christ? Is he really a disciple of Jesus? That's the test. The the distinctions are abolished in the church. But the third assertion, and this is another area of intense confusion, and so often an area in which a confusion betrays a more fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, and that is that the law is established. The law is not abolished, it is established. And we're talking especially about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the eternal law of God, which is a reflection of his moral and righteous character. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. He is telling us, again, another effect of the gospel. The effect of the gospel is to establish the law, not to overturn it. It is to establish the law. And yet, again, you look to the living of so many Christians today, and what does their living communicate? It communicates their belief that the gospel actually overturns the law and has freed us from a constraint to obey the law. Now, why is this an important error to overturn? Well, because Paul has seemed to indicate otherwise. He has seemed, notice, let me underline the word seem, He has seemed to indicate that the gospel does in fact overturn the law. When he keeps stressing in so many different ways that we are justified apart from the works of the law. And so Paul had opponents who were ready to rush in. Well, if that is really the case, Paul, then obviously you're saying that the law doesn't matter. And he's saying, no, you don't understand me. That is not what I'm preaching. That is not what I'm preaching. There were also others in the opposite direction. Those were the legalists on the other side. There were those who said, this is wonderful. The antinomians. Now that Christ has set me free from the law and justified me apart from works of the law, I don't have to keep the law. This is wonderful. Paul is saying, you don't understand. Not only am I not saying that, but you have completely misunderstood the gospel you claim to believe. And so it's important because... Well, in his own day, and, and, and obviously in our day as well, there are these two extremes that men are too, too ready to run into. Do you notice, that we've noticed this already in, in Romans, the brevity. There are times that he, he, he dives in and says, let me explain to you why this is wrong. There's other times where he just brushes it aside. And that in itself is instructive. There are some teachings uh, which we have to take time to perhaps repudiate, but let our general posture be, we will have nothing to do with it. 
Certainly not. Certainly not in the realm of our belief or our practice will we indicate that we believe the gospel sets aside the force of the moral law. Let me tell you first what the argument isn't. Again, his argument is that the effect of the gospel is to establish, not to abolish or overturn the law. We need to be very clear about this, and I admit that in the past I've been in some confusion about this. This is not a statement about our keeping the law. Okay, it, 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 Some people take uh, the gospel to mean that Christ abolished the law so we don't have to keep it. But the opposite of this teaching is not Christ kept, uh, did not abolish the law so we have to keep it. That comes later, that's true, but that's not what he's saying. This is not a statement about our keeping the law. Wait for Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8, and then you'll see uh, the whole idea of sanctification come in here. But here, he's not talking about sanctification. He's talking about justification. He's talking about what the gospel accomplishes for us. And, and the problem is, if we make this a statement about our law keeping, rather than the way the gospel establishes and keeps the law, but we say, no, the gospel makes us keep the law, if we do that, well then, we are uh, sneaking works in. We're saying, well, as a matter of fact, justification really does come by our keeping of the law. But that isn't what Paul is saying. He isn't talking about our obedience. The argument is that, again, the gospel, which is outlined in verses 21 through 26, especially let's focus upon the phrase, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. That gospel establishes the law. In fact, as Martin Lloyd-Jones contends, there is nothing that God has ever done that has so established the law, so plainly and so decisively as what he did through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Far from setting it aside or overturning or abolishing it, he was keeping it in the most careful and decisive way. And to put it even more strongly, if our view of the cross and of justification do not find us, or, or, or do not lead us to find him, rather, establishing and honoring and fulfilling his law, then we do not understand, we haven't even begun to understand what God was doing in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in accomplishing our justification. And so the question becomes, how does the gospel establish the law? And I would offer three answers here. The first, very simply, is by Christ coming into the world. The mere fact that there was an incarnation, that there was a savior and a mediator, what God was doing was fulfilling and establishing the law. And Jesus says as much. You remember that the Pharisees uh, were constantly uh, contending against him, just as they later did against Paul, that the effect of the teaching concerning Christ was that it overturned the law. But Jesus says explicitly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and it's one of the first things you see him saying in the New Testament, I did not or do not think that I came to abolish or to overturn the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so he says it explicitly. I came into the world to establish the law. I came into the world to fulfill the law. And because Christ makes that very pronouncement, everything about him in his incarnate existence among us on this world must be seen as fulfilling those words. Every, every action, every teaching, every miracle, 
his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, everything is a fulfillment and an establishment of the law. And so that leads me to the second answer, uh, looking especially uh, at the life. Focus first upon the life. In other words, ask the question, and be careful here that you don't locate the gospel solely in the death of Christ. Remember that he came among us, he was born, he lived a life. And you ask the question, what was the point of those 33 years? What was he doing? What was he accomplishing? Well, many things are being accomplished, but one of the key things that we find him doing, as he says to John the Baptist when he protested uh, about his baptism, that he was fulfilling all righteousness. When we look to the life of Jesus Christ from uh, the very first breath he took, we find him obeying the Father. His whole life was seen as, uh, as offered as a sacrifice of obedience to the Father. Lo, I have come to do your will, he says to the Father. I don't remember which psalm that is. I think it's Psalm 94, but it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Lo, I have come to do your will. And, 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 and as, as he, he teaches consistently, especially in the Gospel of John, I always do the will of my Father. And so the whole of his life must be seen as an act of obedience to the Father. And what was the point of all of that obedience? Every act of obedience that he rendered as a man, seeing that he always does the will of the Father. In other words, what did he accomplish by becoming a man and obeying God's law perfectly if that's what he was already and always doing in the bosom of the Father? And the answer is given in the gospel. The answer is that he rendered an, an obedience by which we might be justified. I want to say that again because that's so important. He rendered an obedience by which we might be justified. He was not accomplishing anything he needed himself. He was already perfectly righteous. There was no lack or deficiency he was making up for. The whole point of his obedience was making up for the lack of and the deficiency that was found in us as he took hold of our humanity and as he lived uh, the perfect life that we could not live in obedience to the Father. He achieved a righteousness that he did not need that he might give to those who needed it desperately. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. This is an idea that will uh, come out much more strongly in that chapter. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that's Adam, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. That's Jesus Christ. He was achieving the righteousness that we so desperately needed. And do you realize that uh, that is just another way to say that he was establishing the law. He was keeping it. He wasn't turning it aside. He was indicating to us and to the Father that, that even God himself realized that if the sinner was to be justified, the law had to be kept and that it could never be turned aside. That God's law, in other words, was not being set aside in the salvation of sinners, but that it was being actively fulfilled in all of its demands. But then that brings us to the third answer, and that is the cross itself. What was God doing there? And you remember what Paul says about the cross. He, he tells us that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And I preached an entire sermon on that verse. 
But what God, uh, as we saw there, was, ju- was demonstrating was his own righteousness, his own justice. That in justifying sinners, he is just, not unjust. God is just in justifying sinners. Because he does so in a way that honors his law rather than sets it aside. In other words, he doesn't propose to regard the sinner as righteous, that is justify him, by inverting his justice. To say to the sinner, you are righteous, that is an inversion of justice. Just as to say to the righteous, you are guilty, is an inversion of justice. But rather that he was exercising it as completely as he could. By punishing sin on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. By pouring out his wrath on one who was completely righteous, even his own son. And the argument becomes, I don't need to repeat the prior arguments, but the argument becomes, as Romans goes on, if he has done this, even this, then who can ever question whether he might justify anyone, even wretched sinners such as we? If the law in its demands, not only that it be kept, but that sin be punished, if both of those demands were fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son, Where is the injustice? Where is the impropriety that God should regard us and him as the righteousness of God? You see, what sent Jesus to the cross and the reason it was necessary for him to shed his blood upon the tree in order to fulfill all righteousness and the reason that there could be no other way by which we might be saved was God's law. For that is something that is so intimately tied to God's own eternal character That it simply cannot be set aside, not even by God himself. And so it was God's own sense of justice and righteousness that constrained him to act in this way in saving us. And so what we see in the cross, and this is the test, beloved. What we see there is the most glorious display of justice there ever was. We see the law is established and fulfilled. Do not tell me. That Jesus came to save sinners by overturning the law. Again, you simply don't understand what God was doing there. He was fulfilling the law in the most exact and the most forceful way he ever did. And in the most complete way. And that is why, if you continue to reason this out, and I find in preaching Romans I can't help but but continuing uh, to borrow from the conclusion in many ways, that we find at the end of Romans chapter 8, but we even find it uh, in, in earlier places, that is why the gospel, again in the realm of implication, ought to give us such a mighty assurance. If you've really understood the gospel, then you will be assured that God and I are reconciled. If the gospel satisfies the demands of justice and of the law, then I realize that it really can justify once for all. For if it really does satisfy all the demands of God's law, then what is there left to condemn? What is there left to, to accuse me before the bar of God's justice? Can the law, now that Christ has fulfilled it? Certainly not, for who can deny that its demands have been met fully by the righteousness and the death of Jesus Christ? Can God condemn me when it is his own work in justifying me? Yes, and even Satan and our own consciences are forced to conclude that none can condemn now when it is God who is justified. 
And thus you see why Paul is so concerned, uh, is so concerned to set this notion aside. Because if the gospel does not establish the law, then where is the legal basis of our justification? And where then can our consciences ever be satisfied that God really has pardoned and that God really has justified? Not only our own consciences, but our own sense that God himself is satisfied. But when we see clearly that the law is fulfilled and perfected in the gospel and in the life and death of Jesus Christ, then where that leaves me and what that offers me is not only salvation, but assurance and peace of conscience and a conscience that is satisfied. But so long as you are confused about the relation of the law and the gospel, this is simply a place you'll never arrive. It is a peace and assurance you will never enjoy. And so my closing exhortation to you in light of these three implications at the close of Romans chapter 3 is simply that we would all learn together as we uh, reason out Romans together to reason out the gospel. That's what we always find him doing. Follow the arguments right through. Don't say, I've read verses 21 through 26. I've understood them. I'm satisfied. But keep going. Be sure that in your own life that you are consistent. Reason it out. Reason it all the way through. Be consistent and go all the way with this until it has completely transformed your life and our fellowship and given us together as Christian pilgrims a full assurance of hope until the end. Amen. And let us come to the table together.